Welcome to our next session, our next study in our Deeper Life series. We're so glad that you're with us this morning or this afternoon or evening, wherever you are throughout this wonderful world of ours. Now, it's a bit of a decaying world and it's a disintegrating world for those that are not of faith. They don't know the Lord and so there's confusion, contamination and upheaval. But for those that know the truth, Jesus says they live in freedom. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that's why we're doing these podcasts. This is why we're teaching simple truths, dynamic truths, basic truths, foundational truths, so that you might imbibe them, take them on board, and begin to walk in those truths, exercising the principles that are laid down in Scripture. Well, let's get on with study number three. We've been looking at the seduction of a people, a nation, the world in general, and individuals. How does Satan and his emissaries, his representatives, how does he seduce people to even change their whole character, their outlook, to do things that they ordinarily would never have done? to sanction things that they would never have been able in their right mind to have okayed and agreed to. And of course, I've been talking about Germany in the last uh, 60, 80 years, who really became seduced by an ideology that took that nation to an even greater, an even greater destruction than the First World War. There are three principal people I want to just uh, allude to now and talk about. There's Haman, who we meet, a horrible, twisted man in the book of Esther, the one that had a deep, abiding hatred for the Jews. The only reason was that one of the Jews who represented the people, to Haman anyway, was Mordecai, who would not bow the knee because he could not and would not pay subservience to Haman because Haman was building himself up in his own mind to take status that was comparable to the king. And while Mordecai was uh, respectful of the king, he could not worship the king. And he certainly wasn't going to bow the knee and bow his heart and break faith with God in all but worshipping Haman. Then there was Herod, that genius, that amazing man of accomplishments, in so many areas of architecture and building and so on, but a man that was absolutely insecure because he wanted to be the supreme ruler and he could not cope with anybody, anyone at all, that would oppose him. And you know and I know 
that when those three wise men came, and we presume they were three, and they came to, in a very respectful way, came to Jerusalem and spoke to the king about another ruler that had been born, a king whose star had risen in the east and had guided them to that point, Herod went into a mad flap and he became a murderer yet again. And it is recorded that he was a genius indeed, but just a hairbreadth away from insanity. And when he felt that there would be those, or at least one, who would rise up and contest his kingship, the king of the Jews, he went into the area where this babe was supposedly born, the region and Bethlehem, and slew all the little baby boys. Madness. Madness. Utter madness. And of course, Hitler. We know that his regime, that was voted into power in 1933, lasted merely 12 years. He dreamed of a thousand-year reign. Didn't expect himself to be there for the thousand years, of course, but he believed that National Socialism would somehow rule the world and that he would be almost the patron saint. He would be the focal point. His teaching, his brilliance, his bravado, his confidence and courage would forge a new era, not only for Germany, but for the whole of Europe and indeed the world. He had great plans. And with all these three, Haman, Herod, Hitler, and the Pharaoh way before any of them, they had a a pseudo-confidence. They wore a smirk and they walked with a swagger because they believed that they were irreplaceable. Their rule was insurmountable. There was nobody that would be able to, in any way, shape or form, shake their leadership, undermine that leadership and destroy their influence. But of course, each one of them came crashing down. Each one of them came to realize that it's appointed for man once to die. And then, and now, they're aware and cringe at the thought that afterwards, after death, physical death, will come the judgment. Each of these rulers used deception, disguises, were duplicit with anyone, any nation, any other influence that could shore them up in their leadership, They had a a, a terrible determination that they would be the conquerors, and it appeared they would be. But each and every one of them came crashing down in absolute disaster. Now, we as human beings are often seduced by the spirit that's in this world. We have to be very, very careful. And that's why I absolutely declare to you that the only way for you to be safe in this weird, 
world of deception and darkness is for you to know the Word of God. Not just mere basics, but to go deeper. And that's why we have the Deeper Life series, that you can go deeper into the Word of God, that you can get a comprehensive understanding of the ways of God, the person of God, the plans that God has, the calendar of God. There's a calendar that God has and has had since creation to this present day and onwards to the culmination of the age. Everything is in his hands. That old spiritual that they used to sing in uh, Southern America, he's got the whole world in his hands, is true. I remember seeing when I was a kid, a newsreel, that when France surrendered to Nazi Germany after the invasion there, about 1940, Hitler insisted on going to France to confront the leaders and to sign the documents of surrender. He wanted to witness it. He wanted to gloat over it because, you see, he'd been a corporal in the First World War and he had been so livid, so angry, so upset when uh, the First World War brought such defeat and disgrace to, to Germany. Now the tables seemed to be turned and France was no longer the victor, as they'd been in 1918. And in 1918, they signed the armistice with Germany in a railway carriage out in the middle of some uh, countryside in France. And the French had gloated, as had their allies, that Germany under the Kaiser was defeated and would be destroyed, and they would teach Germany a lesson, and had begun to do so with the Versailles Treaty, which was to level against Germany the demand that they pay reparation that just kept Germany almost bankrupt. And of course, the poverty in Germany was terrible, and the spirit of Germany was at a low ebb, until Hitler rose and said, we're not going to have this. And he began to groom the masses of Germany with the idea that they weren't a second-class group of citizens, that they were a cultured people, a mighty people, a master race, in fact, that the Jews had been in some way, shape or form responsible for the bringing down of Germany and they had to be annihilated. So that became his platform. On the day of the signing of surrender, not armistice, but surrender, that Germany demanded of France in 1940, Hitler did appear, and I saw this newsreel of him coming towards the same carriage that so many years before the armistice had been signed and the surrender of Germany to the Allies had been signed. So Hitler said, let's have the now surrender of France signed in that same carriage and we will show them who the masters are. 
And I saw this newsreel. I saw the gathering of many of the then leaders and generals and so on on both sides. And Hitler had a smirk that even as a young teenager, I suppose, I saw and I noted. And I saw the swagger and the little jig that he did outside the carriage. And I thought to myself, that smirk didn't last very long. And many times the devil thinks that he's got you where he wants you. He thinks that you are in his power, under his dominion. You are therefore a puppet in his theatre that is so dark and sinister and frightening that you will play out under his direction every act, every action, and you will reflect his power in your bondage. But that doesn't have to be. If you take the word of God, you and I begin to read the word of God prayerfully, carefully, consistently, there will be formed within us a confidence in God. Not so much a confidence in ourselves, but a confidence in God. And we will realize, like the psalmist in Psalm 46, who said, God is our refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. You will find your refuge you will find your security in him. And like Isaiah says in 32 and verse 1, he says, And a man shall be a hiding place. And the storms will rage around us. We, though may fearing that we're threatened, and feeling that we're threatened, and being told that we are threatened, we are safe. Now, I want to talk about today the conspirators and their consciences. There are instrumentalities of the devil. Some of them would not even know that. Some of them would even preach against the devil and teach against the devil and pride themselves on being in no way part of his plans and his sinister agenda. They would say to you, if you said, hey, I think you're of the devil or being used of the devil, they would be horrified and they would laugh you to scorn or they would be uh, indignant and they would show you scriptures, usually out of context, how that they are the Lord's. We're going to explore that a bit today. How do people fall into the hands of the enemy and without wanting to, find themselves representing him and even working on his behalf, even in blind ignorance. Well, let's go to the scriptures. First Timothy chapter 4. And it says here, now the Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, of course, the Spirit expressly says, now this is very vital, the Spirit expressly emphasizes, says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. And I see that all around the world in nations that once adhered to the Christian gospel and all things 
Bible, there is a departure from the faith. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that people are departing from the church or church buildings or church meetings. They oftentimes have departed from the simplicity that's in Christ. They've departed from a purely, truly biblical perspective and discipleship and taken on a sort of Christian faith, a pseudo-faith. In fact, in fact, it's a de facto faith and a deceptive one. So the Bible says that in the latter times, and we find ourselves in those times, some will depart from the faith. Now, this is how it happens. Verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, mark this. They will give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Mm. When you hear new truth or truth that you're unfamiliar with or you've never heard before or aspects of never heard it before, you always ask yourself, is this founded and confirmed in the word of God. Is this God glorifying or is it man glorifying? Is it being used as a grooming process to get me away from that simplicity that's in Christ? So those that fall into this category, this hideous category of departing from the faith are those that have yielded their minds, yielded their emotions, given their will over to deceiving spirits, active spirits and doctrines of demons who, speaking lies in a hypocrisy, have their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Wow. In other words, their sensitivity to God that they may have had has been deadened and destroyed. They just don't feel any degree of conviction of sin or error or what they're doing. So be very alert when you're listening to the new gospel. And there is a new gospel. There will always be a new gospel that will cater for the new age. The persons that are rising up, a new generation, will say, oh, we don't want the old hat. We don't want the old style. We don't want those inhibiting doctrines. We want to be free to be who we are and live life to the full. And God doesn't want us hemmed in. He wants us free, of course. Of course he wants you free. But Jesus says you shall know the truth and that will set you free. All these false cults, all these false prophets, all these false pastors, evangelists, whatever you like to call them, false apostles, have had their own conscience seared. Over a period of time, they have embraced error. 
and they have unwittingly at first been themselves seduced and now they have died within to the sensitivity of the spirit that they once enjoyed. So you will meet these co-conspirators with Satan and you will say to yourself, I can't believe this person is like that. I personally have sat in the presence of a great teacher that came to Australia on numerous occasions, an American Bible teacher, marvellous ministry, remarkable grasp of the word of God. And yet he died a drunk. He died full of falsity. He had been divorced, I think, two or three times. What contributed to his downfall? Well, the Bible says he'd become heady and high-minded, not humble before God with the acknowledgement of truth, but puffed up. And the Bible says knowledge can puff you up and make you feel that you are somehow, some way superior to everybody else. And this is what happened to this man. And of course, he was uh, reproved by his denomination. He was, I think, sacked from his position uh, of authority in a Bible college. And so in the huff, he went out and started in downtown Los Angeles a church. And that building was there uh, for some time, probably still is. And we passed it one day and I felt so sad when I walked by because this was all that he was left with. An old theatre, fairly, well, modestly done up. And here he was ministering to a dwindling congregation where once he'd had a global ministry and he had gone from country to country, from nation to nation with such blessing. In fact, once he, he preached in uh, Melbourne, Australia, and I was in the meeting on that Sunday morning and he spoke. He spoke on Psalm 84. There you are, 60 years ago, and I can still remember what he preached on. Psalm 84, and he preached with such anointing and such insight. And then he got a singer to come and sing. And this uh, marvelous uh, singer from America who had come, not with the preacher, but independently of him, but was uh, asked to come and sing at this uh, convention, he got up and sang a song akin to the message we just heard. The Holy Ghost came down and over 600 people, 800 people, sat absolutely wrapped. Not in the man, not in the song, not in the singer, but in the presence of God. And the bell was ringing for our lunch. And do you know out of those 800 people, I would think, that were there, no one moved to go and join the line for lunch, not for 20 minutes. And we sat there in the presence of God, absolutely under the sway of the Spirit. The Word of God had been quickened to our spirit, and the singer, equally anointed, was able to lead us in this solemn assembly of worship. And yet, this same 
preacher, this same so-called man of God, as he was when we knew him, fell from grace, possibly died an apostate because he became proud of who he was, proud of what he had. And of course, you know, the first sign is pride and pride comes before a fall. And the higher you are, the greater you fall. And when pride came and came upon him, he fell very, very low. And what happened to him? Well, it's obvious. He gave heed to a deceiving spirit. He began to pursue doctrines of demons and his conscience, little by little, became hard, cold, indifferent to the Spirit of God. Now, the contamination, the counterfeit of Christ the conqueror, Christ the Spirit of truth, we find out that the counterfeit comes from, indeed, the working of devilish spirits. Now, we're not talking about funny little things that run around without any clothes and got horns and a funny little tail out the back like a a monkey or something like that. That's medieval art. Forget that. We're talking about seducing spirits which are plausible and powerful. And we need to be very, very careful of that plausibility. The contamination comes when we ourselves are biblically ignorant. We do not know the truth. And therefore, we succumb to error. Now, you know that there are many titles, many, many descriptions of Satan. Can I just give you a few? Well, he's called Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, Matthew 12, 24. He's called the wicked one, Matthew 13, 19. He's called the enemy, Matthew 13, 39. He's called a murderer, John chapter 8, verse 44. A liar, John 8, 44. The ruler of this world, John 12, 31. And John 14, verse 30. He is the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He is the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. 2. He is the ruler of darkness, Ephesians 6.12. He is the tempter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. He is the king of death, Hebrews 2.14. He is as a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5.8. He is the adversary, 1 Peter 5.8. He is the angel of the bottomless pit. Revelation chapter 9 verse 11. Abaddon or destruction. Revelation 9 11. And again, Revelation 9 11. Apollyon, the destroyer. The dragon, Revelation 12 7. The accuser of our brethren, Revelation 12 10. The serpent of old, Revelation 20 verse 2. The deceiver. Revelation 20 and verse 10. That deception is a continual aspect of his working. And that's why Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says these words. 
Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Now, we know that there's ungodly jealousy when you want something just purely for yourself, but godly jealousy is where you are so desperate for the safekeeping and the blessing of others. And Paul had that burden. He was jealous over the Corinthians and indeed all believers that he had contact with, that they would be betrothed to one husband, that he, Paul, may say on the day of rewards, Father, oh Father, may I present my believing friends, chaste virgins, to Christ. But he goes on to say, but I fear lest someone, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. For though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not untrained in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. When I was present with you, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 11, when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what was lacking to me, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. He didn't steal money off the saints. He said, as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. And then he goes on to say something that is very interesting. He talks about, as we've read, his practical allegiance to paying his own way, not being a money grabber in any way. But he says these words, there are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Friends, we live in a deceptive age. We live in a diabolical age. We live in an age where we must be careful. We live in a confused age. We live in an age where people are beginning to wonder what is truth. We're beginning to sound like Pontius Pilate. What is the truth? 
Well, the truth is in Christ. The truth is in the Word. The truth is in the revelation of the Spirit of God, not some fanciful, mystical revelation, something that is eternal and strong and life-changing and powerful and sanctifying, keeping you in the faith, keeping you in blessing, keeping you in the peace of God so you can hear the voice of God. God bless you and we'll see you again when we go to study number four in knowing who our enemy is, knowing how to counteract him, knowing how to stand against him, and even, even controlling him as he tries to control us. See you again real soon. Thank you.